Lord, we do indeed anticipate more of the joy of singing and thankful for the way in which these musicians have blessed us and we have mixed our songs together and lifted them up to the glory of your name. We praise you for the privilege that we have to gather in this way as your people. And we do look forward to the gathering tonight and just pray that you might work uniquely in that time for the glory of your name. And now, Lord, as we give ourselves to an understanding of the word that we would uh, do so diligently, that by your spirit you would bring conviction and understanding, we pray that you would do what you alone can do and that this word would be seed that is living and active, discerning our very spirits and understanding us. And may we see in these words your guidance and wisdom. I pray that as a church we would give ourselves now to calibrating our worship and our life together by the instruction that we find here in the Word and just pray that in all that we do, so far removed from the time of the Corinthian church, yet very needy of Your Word, and just pray that You would use it to that end. We pray again for those who know not Christ, that they might find, even in this instruction, a call to come to trust Him. It's through Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Imagine a large family Christmas gathering. This particular family is pretty boisterous and freewheeling. And gifts are distributed, and when the go sign is given, they don't take turns, but 12 grandkids and 9 adults tear into their presents all at the same time. Wrapping paper flies wildly into the air. Three dogs run about the room in a frenzy. Christmas music plays loudly but is drowned out by exuberant shouting and laughter. Babies are crying. Sugar-fueled children jump about crazy with excitement and happy chaos reigns. Now later, Grandpa calls everyone to join in singing carols and reading the account of Christ's birth in Scripture. Well, the orientation is going to have to change, isn't it? The chaos and the disorder must be reined in. If the kids and dogs keep running about, if people keep yelling and laughing and opening gifts, that time of family worship will prove ineffectual if it doesn't even prove profane. And in this family with godly adults, they're happy to use the opportunity to explain to the kids that there needs to be a change of demeanor here as we come to this time of family worship. They, they won't enforce some type of somber funereal spirit by any means. Joy will radiate from these believing souls as carols are sung and Scriptures are read, but the atmosphere in that family room must change. Gift unwrapping is one thing. Worship is a different thing. And it calls for a different orientation. And so the family must calibrate to what is appropriate for worship. You see where I'm going, certainly. 
So it is with the gathering of the local church to worship. The appropriate atmosphere does not take its cues from a ball game or a stage show or a birthday party or an amusement park. We gather on the Lord's Day to worship the Lord Jesus Christ as His holy bride called out from this world and gathered together here in a unique way. We gather to proclaim that Jesus died for His bride that Jesus is purifying His bride, that He is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to redeem His people for all eternity. We gather together to lift up this message, to exalt in it, to rejoice in it. And that calls for a certain type of atmosphere. To rightly orient the atmosphere of our assemblies to reflect these realities of why we indeed gather. Now, this was a major problem in the Corinthian church. It's a major problem in many churches in our land and across this world today. And so, the Apostle Paul's instructions to them are instructive to us. Our environment, our setting is very different, but the principles that we find here are very applicable to us. I do not believe that we continue to routinely receive miraculous revelatory messages from the Holy Spirit in this era as they did. But Paul's instructions are nonetheless profitable on many levels as we consider our worship atmosphere. So last week we looked at verses 1-25 through of this lengthy chapter and Paul has argued for the superior gift of prophecy over speaking in uninterpreted foreign languages that God was giving at that time, but he speaks of the importance of prophecy. Why? Because prophecy directly builds up the church. Again, tongues will do the same if the gift of interpretation is given. It takes twice as long, but it's building up the church. The point is that people understand what is being said. And so that is why prophecy is more important the goal is to build up the church remember chapter 14 verses 1 through 3 pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts that is the endowments of the spirit in the assembly especially that you may prophesy for one who for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to god for no one understands him but he utters mysteries in the spirit on the other hand the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. This is why we gather. This is what is to drive us. And Paul now closes out chapters 12-14 through 14 in a, by tying up some loose ends and really correcting the assembly here with some specific guidelines of how to recalibrate their atmosphere in a way that genuinely honors the purpose of their gatherings and honors Christ. So the first principle that we find here in verse 26 is that every element of, this, of the worship of the Christ church must aim to edify the whole church above catering to individual experience. We should be gathering to build up all not catering to individual experience. This is his point, I think, in verse 26. What then, brothers? What then, brothers? He's tying up these loose ends 
with several principles. The church likely gathered in a larger home, and in that intimate setting, allowed for, allowed for very interactive worship gatherings. I think by our standards, we'd say there's a lot going on there. And in Paul's thinking, there was too much going on there. So in addressing that setting, he says, what then, where should we head with this? Verse 26, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. I think that means of tongues. So a member might compose a simple hymn of praise to God and bring that hymn with them, or a hymn perhaps that they knew and just wanted to hear the congregation sing again. And another would come with a lesson. I, I think that's a Holy Spirit-inspired word of teaching, an exhortation or word of truth for the assembly to consider. And someone else with a revelation. This could probably take different forms. It probably includes prophecy, includes speaking in tongues, a word of revelation from God to be shared with the assembly. And others might come with the ability to interpret tongues. I, I don't think he's being exhaustive here at all, but just saying here's some things you may bring as you come together for worship. Now the context here is that in the Corinthian church they placed a great emphasis upon prophecy. I'm sorry, that was wrong. <laughs> I just see he was awake here. On, on tongue speaking. They placed a great priority on, this, on speaking in tongues. Tongues provides, it seems as we, if we're inferring rightly from this passage, it provides some level of individual experience that is satisfying, that is encouraging to the individual. God is at work here. The Spirit of God has given this capacity. And I, and I sense it, and as I speak these words in this language that I do not understand myself, it's encouraging to the individual. Verse 4 of chapter 14. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Or verse 17. For you may be giving thanks well enough as you speak in tongues. You are indeed giving thanks to God, but the other person is not being built up. So I, I think these two verses indicate there is indeed some genuine personal benefit in the experience. I realize some take these verses differently, that this is negative or even sarcastic, but I think he's just saying there's, there's an effect there. And now he beats this drum again in verse 26 at the end. Let all things be done for building up. That's the whole point. Verse 12, here again, everything to build up the church. This is what matters above all. Whatever part you may wish to have in the worship service, aim to build up the assembly. As you come together, think about how you can encourage and build up and profit the growth of the church. Tongues provide a moving spiritual experience in the individual, but no one else has helped because no one understands what is said. And so, don't look at this as self-promotion, certainly. Or even just self-satisfaction. Your coming together and worshiping with the church is not about the individual, but it is about the individual functioning within the corporate body for the upbuilding of the whole. 
Now this thought brings Paul back to the topic of speaking in tongues. And we look then secondly at this principle that every element must aim at peace and away from chaos. That's tracking with a large section of, this, of these verses here. But I think that overall, that is the point. We'll work through it under two headings. The first um, isn't there. It is just not there. All right. So under two headings, the first is application of speaking in tongues, verses 27 and 28. Verse 27, the application to speaking in tongues. If any speak in a tongue... Let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. So Paul lays down three practical rules. Limit tongue speakers to three. Only one can speak at a time. Do not speak at all unless someone has the gift of interpretation. That's the rules. Put this into play in what you know is going on there. I mean, these services, by all indications, this is a cacophony of chaos. And tongues are really important. If you were here last week and remember the illustration that I shared of the church in the inner city of Philadelphia that I observed as a boy. The building just seeming to shake with all of the people speaking in tongues at once. And I have no doubt that the people leaving those services felt very encouraged. Lots of activity going on there. Lots of chaotic activity going on there. Imagine if Paul was asked to come and speak to this church as a special speaker and said, for now on, only three of you. And in turn can speak in tongues. I mean, that church would have been devastated. This is not how we do worship. And the Apostle Paul is saying, it's how you're going to start doing worship. This is not building up the church. You're just prioritizing your own personal experience and, self, and, and self-promoting. So this will help. Only three, one at a time, and only if there's an interpreter. So if that speaker went to that church in Philadelphia and shared this with the people, that this is the new way forward, undoubtedly there would be many that would rise up and say, you're crushing the Spirit of God. You're grieving the Spirit of God. God is at work here and giving us this miraculous tongue. And you're saying, stop, control it turn it down what would paul say no i'm teaching you how to love it's love that's driving this directive not a desire to crush the spirit but as we come into the presence of the lord this chaos of people speaking over one another in tongues of people coming who are unbelievers to the assembly as he mentioned earlier in the chapter and saying you people are crazy This is not appropriate. This isn't how to worship the King of Kings. Okay, Paul, what if there's no one to interpret? As apparently was fairly typical in this this church, according to verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 14, "So So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, 
how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Apparently, this is what's happening with some routine. So the question arises, what about if there's no interpreter? Verse 28, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So a member realizes the Holy Spirit is revealing a message in a language he or she does not understand. This provides a keen sense of the Spirit's presence in this member's soul who is moved by this experience. But Paul says, don't speak. Pray quietly to God. Commune with Him in the assembly, but don't speak because no one but you will benefit, and that's of no value. Not in the assembly. So that's the application to tongues, and I can guarantee the Corinthian church was reeling. This is a total recalibration. And Paul would say yes to love. To how to come into the assembly and say what matters most of all is the assembly. How do I build it up? Now, application to prophecies, verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. As with tongues, I believe he is limiting prophecies here to three per service. And when one prophesies, the church must weigh the accuracy of the message. Is it truly a word from God? We're going to take a, a little sideline here. Uh, December's not a great month for deep theology, I guess, but we're here. <laughs> and we've got to ex- work with me here. We need to think about this from the standpoint of the theological positions of our day, and I'll be brief. But as some continuations would take this verse, verse 29... Continuations, that's those who believe in the ongoing miraculous revelatory gifts, etc., but those particularly. Some continuationists conclude from this verse that prophecy in the New Testament is quite different than prophecy in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the prophet often spoke with the phrase, this is the word of the Lord, or thus says the Lord. And so the standard in the Old Testament for a prophet was absolute accuracy. You speak for God, then you speak for God. You don't speak untruth. It's made very clear in particularly Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. We won't get into the, all of what that's about and talking about it, just, but just notice the phrase, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Pretty severe discipline. And if you say in your heart, How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. He's not covering all eventualities here, but you get the point, the idea. If it's the word of the Lord, it's the word of the Lord. And if the prophet speaks for himself, note that, 
It might be a false prophet. But if so, then he's spoken presumptuously. He's not coming with the word of the Lord. There's no fear of such a person. Now, continuationists and cessationists all agree on the nature of Old Testament prophecy. When I say all, I mean in our general gospel preaching camp. If a prophet spoke in God's name, then he spoke absolute truth. We agree on this. But, continuationists would argue that prophecy underwent a fundamental change. So under the New Covenant, prophecy became more widely practiced and also became susceptible to error. One spokesman for this view says, we in the church today should consider prophecy to be merely human words, not God's words, and not equal to God's words in authority. So the Holy Spirit reveals truth to the prophet, but somewhere between the prophet's spirit and his tongue, the message gets muddled, possibly tainted with error. And therefore, that's why Paul says in verse 29, you need to weigh what is spoken. I would reject that position. I believe New Testament prophecy is of the same nature as Old Testament prophecy. And we have good friends with whom we would disagree on that point, but again, I, I just lay out what, where I stand on that. First of all, the New Testament never informs us that prophecy under the New Covenant is different than prophecy under the Old Covenant. It, you get on really shaky ground when you begin inferring that from texts where there is never any indication that that's in fact what is happening. The New Testament never prepares us with a single word of instruction for this supposedly seismic shift in meaning. Secondly, there is no explanation theologically for this change. We may find implicit reasoning to come to that conclusion theologically, but there simply is none. There's really no explanation as to why prophecy would now be tainted. And number three, verse 29 I believe, is just boilerplate practice for all prophets of all time. Always you needed to weigh the prophecy. False prophets were all over the Old Testament, and God's people always had to discern if a prophet spoke the truth. If you want a really fun example of that for this afternoon, read 2 Chronicles chapter 18. The false prophets are lined up as they tell the king exactly what he wants to hear. So it's not like in the Old Testament, a prophet came around, I mean, he spoke, you weighed, and you discerned whether this was a true prophet or a false one. You based that on his words and on what happened. His nose didn't glow. Like the good prophets didn't have a glowing nose. Of that. Whatever that guy says is right. I can tell right up now. I mean, it's a Rudolph guy, you know. He, he, he's, he's good. No, you had to weigh what the prophet said. This is always the way it's been. So he might ask, I don't get this. Why is this important? Why is this prophecy question so vital? Well, those who claim that the revelatory gift of prophecy continues today must account for those believers who claim to prophesy in God's name and say foolish things. How can they call it prophecy 
when people claim to speak for God, but say things that are not true? Answer, New Testament prophecy is merely human words and has fundamentally changed from the Old Testament. I don't think so at all. I would say that's then not prophecy. It might be a testimony, a word of wisdom on the part of an individual, but it's not the New Testament early church gift of prophecy. If prophecy comes from God, if it is revealed by the Holy Spirit, then it is not merely human words and it has no error. And someone claims to speak for God, that person better speak for God. Well, back to Paul's counsel. Verse 30. That's our day. Some issues that we want to just be aware of at least. But back to verse 30 and on his theme. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, so one's prophesying and a revelation comes to someone who's sitting in the congregation, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one in turn so that all may learn and all be encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So he's picturing a brother's prophesying, speaking a word of instruction or prediction revealed by God. And another receives a prophecy. The brother is to sit down and hold his tongue. You see how this works very much against chaos. I guess we're supposed to allow the Holy Spirit to interrupt himself. If he's giving a message to one and another gets one, he can interrupt himself. And maybe it's just the way of the Holy Spirit saying it's time for you to sit down. I don't know. But the important principle is verse 32. And it is crucial to us, even though we are way removed from this context. Verse 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. True Christian worship never causes a believer to lose mental or bodily control. That is not how the Holy Spirit works. Prophets could choose to stop speaking. So when we hear of the Spirit's work where people are slain in the Spirit, it's called, who they fall over, with their, their body goes limp and they lose all control of their limbs or they bark like dogs or convulse on the floor, one thing we can know about that is that's not the Holy Spirit. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. They are capable of stopping their talk, sitting down, holding their tongue. So here in summary is the principle of worship that Paul means to convey now. Verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace confusion disorder where we could translate it disorder or unruliness the gathering of the church for worship is designed by christ to be a chaos free zone the worship of the corinthian church was apparently disorderly and unruly with people speaking in tongues and prophesying over one another all at once and again if someone came into the assembly they say these people are nuts paul says this has to stop now the point is not that worship should be dull and dry and depressing. Their problem was maybe over-exuberance. Ours is falling asleep. But the point is that it is to be orderly, structured, sensible, even in the eye of unbelievers who do not conclude then that we are crazy in the head when they come in among us. 
Our worship must hinge on God's character and disordered frenzy is not God's M.O. Peace is His M.O. Peace does not fine-tune our understanding of what our worship should look like exactly. But it does point in a general direction, doesn't it? He's a God of peace. So don't talk over one another. One at a time. Control your spirit. Sit down. Do whatever is necessary for the building up of the body for the salvation of the lost. Certainly rules out falling on the floor and barking like dogs and jumping about in unfettered ecstasy. It also calls into question worship calibrating to, calibrated to a secular stage show in our day. We must all ask, and I mean really, right now, in our seats, ask the question of yourself. Does the worship environment of our assembly reflect a God of order and a God of peace? Does it exude peace and beauty and wisdom and grace and purity and spirit-driven joy? In a word, does it glorify and honor our Creator and Redeemer as best we know? We don't know what Jesus thinks of our gatherings precisely. But if we're tracking toward His character and here specifically stated for us, the God of peace who, knows, who does not appreciate confusion, we should know that we're at least basically on track in the right direction and that what Christ thinks is all important. Well, I agree with the ESV here on verse 33 that this is a good place to divide the paragraph right in the middle of verse 33. Some would disagree with that, but I think for reasons that we'll not share here that that's a good place to take as a paragraph break. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. This would indicate our third principle here, that our worship must bear witness to God's creative design for men and women. As in all the churches of the saints, that would be like a non-statement if it went with what was before, like God is a God of peace in all the churches. Uh, But putting it with what follows, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Now this prohibition hits us as absolute. They're not to speak at all. And it certainly strikes us as out of sync with chapter 11. And I encourage you to turn back there. Get get an eye on chapter 11 and verse 4. Chapter 11 and verse 4, he says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since since it is the shame as if her husband were shaven. Dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, remember, there's a lot of cultural context there, but some would insist then, how do you put those together? If she's pictured as praying and prophesying in chapter 11, how can chapter 14 say she's supposed to be silent? How do you put it together? Everybody's scrambling. We'd like Paul to just say, could you just write that a little differently? 
fill in a few more blanks here and give this to us? I don't know why, but everybody's scrambling to figure out how to reconcile those two. So some would say, well, chapter 11 is private worship. That's just talking about a woman praying and prophesying in a small group or private or in her home. But the problem with that is that her praying and prophesying is parallel to that of men, and the context is corporate worship. So Paul's not using an illustration of a woman prophesying or praying in the assembly that he's now later going to say, you can't do that. That's problematic, I think, to take it that way. The other problem is that why would a woman need to cover her head in private devotion or in a small group with other women? So we understand the cultural context, the covering of the head was indication of submission to her husband. No need to do that in the home. The veiled the veil that women wore in Corinth symbolized that submission, but it was a symbolism that served in public, not in private. She did not wear a veil to bed. She did not wear one when bathing. She didn't wear one when the family gathered to eat. So I think it is public here in chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. I would conclude that those verses envision women prophesying in the assembly, that is, reporting a message that God gave them. This is very different than teaching, instructing, and exhorting men, which Paul forbids in 1 Timothy 2. So the silence here must refer to something more narrow than all elements of worship. Perhaps verse 35 provides the clue to this challenging question, perhaps, verse 35, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And I don't want to speak for Paul. I honestly can't say exactly what he's driving at here. There's so many possibilities. I don't want to speak for him, but he seems to have in view the place of women learning in the assembly. And it is very likely, he says this is connected to the law, so it's probably connected to Genesis chapter 2 and the relationship of husband and wife. But this verse may tip us off that Paul has in mind particularly the teaching ministry of the Word in the church. Whatever it was that men could only do, that women were not to publicly challenge. Again, I think we have a situation here of a very lively interactive service. I've been in those, if you've ever seen one. It's a little strange for us, a little unnerving, but people talking right back uh, to the pastor as he preaches. At least Paul is saying that. that They should not be challenging a man publicly. Ask your husband at home. Work that out in private. If it's a single woman, obviously she can talk to another mature woman or to her father or even to a pastor of the church later or something of the like. But what is important here is that Paul is insisting that the gathering of the church reflect the right order of male and female, what God has created. And any place that a woman steps forward in a way that that the... Uh, works away from that picture is to be eschewed. So it certainly restricts women from a 1 Timothy 2 teaching, exhorting ministry. 
But that's the big picture. Our worship must reflect God's creative design, and women have the privileged calling from God to reflect that order as they gather in proper relationship with their husbands in the church. Probably doesn't cross a lot of our minds as women, but it would be good to take this with us. As I come to assembly, do I honor my husband? Is it clear that I walk in submission to him? Wearing a veil isn't going to work in our society. Nobody's going to catch that one. But how do I calibrate my life to honor him, to respect him? And men, how foolish to call our women to do that if we don't rightly lead in a loving way. By God's grace, as people come into the assembly, they see the relationship of husbands and wives in Christian marriage, and they say, there's something I don't see anywhere else. And I've got to admit, it works. And I'm almost having to admit that it's actually beautiful. That's what, we, that's what we're aiming at. I think that's where Paul's pushing us here. Verse 36 Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or you, the only ones that it's reached? I think his point here is your disordered services. Do you think you're like the Christian church begins and ends with you? That your services and women issuing words of instruction and challenging men and in that setting particularly shaming their husbands? Who do you think you are? Do you imagine that you are in the place of determining what worship should look like? In the Christian church. I mean, this is pretty bold and pretty, pretty uh, aggressive, frank talk here. But he says, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, endowed by the Spirit of God, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. Verse 37. Verse 38. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. The play on words here. Paul speaks with apostolic authority. He presses them to honor that instruction using that play on words, warning them that God will not recognize them if they don't recognize His teaching. They were anxious to be recognized by others. What Paul is saying, make sure you're recognized by the Lord that what you're doing is indeed building up the assembly. And a fourth principle we find in verses 39 to 40, we should worship with zeal, but always in an appropriate and orderly manner. That's kind of a concluding statement that he makes, verse 39. So, so my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. He wants to steer away from a zealous He does not want to steer away from a zealous desire to commune with the Holy Spirit. In their day, this might involve seeking the spiritual endowment of speaking in tongues or prophesying. I am not seeking to squash what the Holy Spirit is indeed doing among you. So, verse 39, earnestly desire to prophesy. There's nothing wrong with that. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. He's very much reined it in. And he's even called them to not speak in tongues if there's no interpreter. But he's not saying to crush that, for it is indeed an evidence of the Spirit of God. But, verse 40 is a key. All things should be done decently and in order. Decently. 
becomingly, with dignity, is the idea of the word. And order, in an orderly manner, with structure, with meaningful development. This must mark the gatherings of our church. Dignity, decency, orderly, structured, meaningful development. That's a directive from the Lord. So as our imaginary family at Christmas purposefully calibrates its focus to worship, so we are responsible as church members to calibrate the environment of our worship services. To assure that those services indeed build up believers. There was no outside regulatory entity above the church at Corinth that was called to monitor their compliance to the apostolic council. This needed to come from them. They had a responsibility, as we have a responsibility, to rightly steward and nurture that orientation. They needed to come to worship with their minds engaged, with love directing their very effort, and with a commitment to calibrate all to the ordered, peace-loving, edifying, Christ-exalting vision of the Apostle that's described here in these verses. We don't know precisely what his counsel would be to Eden Baptist Church. We need to be thoughtful of that. But what must prevail in light of chapter 13 is that is love over self in worship. A deference to others, a building up and encouraging of others in the assembly. And I I think it just raises the question, to what extent do I think about our worship services from the standpoint of my own personal satisfaction? We find that pretty easy. what, What I prefer, what I would like, what works for me, what gives me the vibe that I'm looking for. We all are quick to ask that question. But we must also ask the question, how do I think about the worship of the church in its building up of others? Am I giving myself away to that orientation? I'm so thankful for the labors that go into the worship of this assembly and how each week there is an effort made to be decent and in order. Grateful that uh, Rich giving leadership to that area has Uh, detailed, purposeful, ordered worship considered for us each week. And that is really a gift. It's a gift for us to receive and to enter into that and to seek to participate in it. It's interesting that he begins uh, in the new year a course on liturgical discipleship, which is how do we worship and how do we grow in the midst of worship? What's going on in worship? You spend a lot of time here, a lot of you. It's really good to get what's going on and why. And to say, I need to grow in my participation with that worship. And I can tell you as an old guy, I'm still at it. It's a practice. You keep learning what not to do, how to participate, what is going on and why. We're ever growing and learning and drawing closer to the Lord as we participate in worship. 
So it is a stewardship with much to learn, and I'm thankful I look forward to three months of instruction in that area taking place here in the new year. And indeed, tonight, I've asked an unbelieving friend to join us here tonight. I am not shaken in my boots that things are going to go crazy in here. That we're going to have some chaotic service that my friend says, you people are nuts. I think if he comes by the grace of God, he's going to say, that's a place of peace. That's a place of exultant joy. That's a place where people seem to be attentive to one another. It's not a stage show. It's beautiful. May God enable that and even bring souls to consider the gospel this evening. Let's pray to that end. Father, we praise you for what you've given us as a church. It is a gift of your kindness to us to have the blessing of music, the capacity to read, the privilege by the sacrifice of Christ to come into your presence and to pray as an assembly, to think of the prayers that were raised up here today by Rocky and are joining in with the Amen, to just think of what would happen if you answered those prayers. And to know what has happened, that the prayers of confession that we've offered have been answered. What a privilege it is to be able to have Bibles and to have them opened to consider what you have revealed by your Spirit to your church. Lord, we are so deeply blessed. And I pray for this congregation that you would continue to nurture and to grow us. May we not be at peace with where we are in the ultimate final sense of never ever changing again. But I pray, Father, that our change would always dignify the glory of your name and represent the order and the honor that flows from your character and is due you. We owe you worship that is pure. And I pray that you would continue to purify this assembly and deepen us in that endeavor. And may we, with thought of one another, gather in the assembly to build one another up in the faith. Lord, hear this cry of our heart to to synchronize our lives, to mesh them together with what you have revealed. We ask this of you. And we do pray indeed for the gathering tonight and pray that gospel light would be shown on the truth of your word. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.